Uh, well, this morning uh, we are going to, we're in our study in the Gospel of John. We finished uh, chapter 1 last week, and so we're going to cover the first 11 verses of chapter 2. So, uh, Big John, chapter 2, the first 11 verses. <clears throat> Let me go ahead and, uh, I'm going to go ahead and read those verses for us. And on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says you whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six water pots water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews containing twenty or thirty gallons apiece. And Jesus said to them, Fill the water parts with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And He said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And He said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested His glory, and His disciples believed in Him. Let's, uh, Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You again for our time that You've set aside in our week where we can open Your Word and study. And we just ask that the Holy Spirit be here with us today and guide us in all truth. And we pray that uh, You would teach us by Your Word today. And even now, prepare our hearts for our morning worship service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When John writes about the miracles of Jesus, we know this is the first recorded miracle here in John's Gospel. When he writes about the miracles, he usually refers to them as signs. Uh, this in verse eleven we read, uh, or excuse me, uh, and yeah, and, and towards the end of the reading in verse eleven he says, "This beginning of signs." So he uses the word signs that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. The uh, the Greek word translated signs really re- re- refers to a sign or a token that of something or someone else to dis- to distinguish it, uh, to distinguish a person or a thing from the others. That's what the Greek word here used. That's what it means. So it's a sign or a token that distinguishes a person or a thing uh, from others. And so what John is saying is Jesus is performing these miracles not only for their own sake. It's not about just the miracle of what's happening. uh, But it's to point to something or, uh, in this case, someone else. Um, these miracles, of course, uh, and we mentioned this last week, served as proof that Jesus was who He said that He was. He was sent from the, from the Father. And Jesus also said of His miracles uh, that they only, not only confirmed His identity as the Messiah, but it also pointed out to His ministry. It brought attention to the ministry and His work of bringing uh, the kingdom of God. And so we see here this first sign of Jesus uh, this first miracle that's recorded for us, and it takes place at a wedding. 
we are told this wedding happened in Cana and that Jesus and his disciples and his mother were also invited. What we know about Cana is that it was the home of Nathaniel. We learn this later in John's Gospel in chapter 21. Um, the exact location of Cana is not is unknown. Uh, there are some uh, ruins that are approximately nine miles north of Nazareth that most people would agree is probably the uh, biblical town or the, the village of Cana. So about nine miles north of Nazareth where Jesus is from. So we can assume here that this wedding involved the friends of Jesus and his family. We know that uh, the disciples accompanied him, uh, and we know that we were uh, there were five disciples mentioned in the previous chapter, so we can safely assume they were all here. And they were Andrew, uh, Simon, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, and the unnamed disciple, which we can accurately assume was John himself, because John is recording this event. So it was surely John who was here with them. Based on what we can, the information we're given about the water pots, okay, it must have been a very large wedding. Uh, and at this time, we think about weddings, and I know we, we still have weddings here today, uh, but uh, our weddings usually, you know, last, uh, you have a service of 30 minutes, 40 minutes, sometimes an hour, and then you have a reception that it's going to be that night, and it could last a couple of hours, and then it's over. Uh, but a wedding uh, in, during this time in, in history, it was customary for them to last up to eat almost a week at a time. So this was a large celebration where family and friends gathered, and it could last as long as a week. But what, we tell, what John tells us, uh, that in the middle of this celebration, this large gathering, all these people, something goes terribly wrong. Right, something we have a big deal, we have a big problem, and it may not seem like a big problem to us, but we're going to find out that it was a big problem. The host of the wedding, uh, which would in this case would be the bridegroom, has run out of wine. Now, you know, maybe uh, he didn't have enough to start with. Um, Maybe there were more guests than he had expected. Uh, maybe um, we had a bunch of drunkards in the group and they just drank more than they were supposed to. Um, we don't really know exactly why, right? Um, but for whatever reason, we find out they're out. They're out of wine. Now, this presented two problems for the host. Uh, you know, and, and we, we see it, if it happened today, it would be like, oh, well, that's it, it's out, you know, bar's closed, y'all got to go home kind of thing, right? But in this time, it, this, was, this was two big problems, okay? Uh, first, this was a huge, enormous embarrassment for the host, okay? Extremely embarrassing. You got all these people here, a lot of, some of them have traveled probably great distances to be here, and now I have run out of wine, and we're just getting started, Okay? Um, so, very much of an embarrassment to the host. The other side, uh, there's evidence to believe that in the ancient Jewish world, if something like this were to happen, the groom could actually be sued by the bride's family because there's a he's agreed to take this woman as his wife and we have all this thing and these are arrangements. And so it's very possible they could even bring suit against him for running out of wine. So needless to say, this was a, what seems like to us, really not a big deal. Uh, in this situation, it was quite scandalous. This was a major ordeal. 
And so we find out very quickly that Jesus' mother finds out, and she immediately goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, they have run out of wine. Do something, basically, right? That's, that's kind of what she's asking. Now, what, you know, what do you think that she had in mind? Now, we know how the story goes, but what do you think Mary, the mother of Jesus, had in mind at this point? What do you think she was, what was she thinking when she, she goes to Jesus, do something? They're out of wine, Jesus. What do you think she was, had in mind? Anybody? Make wine. Okay, maybe. Could have been that. Anything else? Because we don't, I mean, we don't really know exactly what she had in mind. She could have had something else in mind, right? Anybody? I mean, what would, what would y'all, this is Jesus. Mike, what do you think, Mike? She might Hey, you know, it might have been. Hey, these people have drunk too much. They drunk out of wine. You need to preach to them or say something to them. I don't know. Scold them, right? Maybe. It struck them, yeah. Make them, you know, hey, I'll show you. You know, y'all messed up and you're all a bunch of drunks or whatever. Um, so, anyway, we don't exactly know what was going through Mary's mind. Uh, but... We see her, her, her coming to her son. Do, you got to do something. Do, do something. So she says, "Jesus, they've they've run out of wine." And then in verse four, we have this this statement: "Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come." Now, Doctor Sproul said, "I got three questions that occur to me about his uh, response, and and probably uh, you would have the same ones. First of all." Why does he address her as woman? How do you, or how do you, what was his tone of voice, do you think, when he said this? Do you think it was woman? What does your concern have to do with me? Do you think it, he said it like that? Oh, probably, probably not. He, he, he did not. Well, I say probably not. He did not say it like that. Um, because if he did say it like that, that seems incredibly rude. Uh, even today, right? If we were to address a woman this way, woman, and you just now, you know, we joke around. Uh, we, we've been married. It wasn't work good at home? Good at home. <laughs> not at your house. And Dylan says, Kay, it would, Kay says it wouldn't work in Dylan in his house. It would not work. Um, we joke around sometimes, you know, woman, you know, it just, it's more in play. I hope my kids understand that, that it's more in play. Right? Do what? Better be a nice tone. I say it smiling or laughing most of the time. So I hope, I probably ought to remind my boys, hey, I'm just messing around with your mom, you know, a little bit. Um, probably should do that. But anyway, we, we again, we when we read it, this is how we would interpret that, right? But uh, So in our day, it's almost rude. However, in Jesus' time, this was a title of respect. Uh, much like we would use ma'am or, or madam today. Um, Remember uh, that this addressing a woman this way, this is the same title that Jesus used about his mother. When, at the, I'm sorry, okay, mother here, but the same time when he addressed her from the cross, if you remember, right? In John 19, remember what he said? He's hanging on the cross and he says, What? Woman, behold your son. Okay, same, same title, the same way he addressed her. This is also how Jesus addresses the woman at the well that we read about in John 4. You remember the, the encounter uh, that when we're talking about the living water and Jesus says, you drink the water I give you, you'll never thirst again. And she wants to know. And he says, what? Remember what he says? To go get your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right. You've had five, right? And the woman you're living with now is not even your husband. 
And then he says, when he addresses her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. So we see here of several instances where Jesus has used uh, this when addressing a woman. None of them were um, rude. Uh, Jesus was using a title of respect that was common in the day. Another question that comes up, okay? So what does Jesus mean when he asks, what does your concern have to do with me? He asks her a question. Okay, and if you look at various translations of the Bible, you'll find different arrangements of the words here. Okay, uh, Even today, uh, even the best Greek, the Greek scholars are not exactly sure how to translate what he said here. Uh, literally, Jesus says, what is this to you, to me? It's literally the literal Greek translation. What is this to you, to me? So it makes it difficult to translate. But what everybody, all scholars most agree that it's clear to most ones that what Jesus is really saying is don't tell me what to do with my earthly ministry. Okay, that's a, that's a, that's a serious statement, right? Um, because why? He was, he was taking directions from His heavenly Father. And no person here was going to direct how his ministry was going to go. Ironically, uh, even with this, with this statement or this response from Jesus, after saying that, responding that to his mother in a respectful way, okay, we've determined that. It's not he wasn't being disrespectful to his mother. Um, after doing this, he proceeded to deal with the problem. Now, uh, the third thing, a third question about Jesus' response. Why did Jesus say, my hour has not yet come? Well, as we move through John's Gospel, we'll see that when Jesus uses words like this, He's referring uh, to His, or he, well, he has referred to His coming, that the hour of His coming. He refers to it several times. Uh, he refers to several different things when He says this too. He often refers to the hour of His passion when He would is going towards the cross and He's being, um, he's being um, punished. He's being um, just torn apart and beaten. Um, the other time He refers to His hour, the coming of His hour, as when He would be crucified. Uh, he talked many times about the hour in which His Father uh, would reveal His glory. That's an important piece of Jesus' ministry. But and, and but Mary knew that at some point Jesus because Mary, Mary knows who he is. I mean, remember that we got to remind ourselves she knows who he is, uh, and at some point uh, she knows that Jesus's glory will be revealed. It will be uh, manifested, and so we know that Jesus is when he, when you hear these words, "My hour has not yet come." He's he's now you know thirty years old or so, and so. For 30 years and for the rest of his public ministry, he knows that hour is coming. He knows what he's here to do. So you know that's a huge burden uh, on his spirit. We know that was a big deal uh, for him. And so Jesus is kind of saying to his mother, it's not time for me yet to enter into my glory. That time has not arrived yet. And so in a sense... R.C. Uh, thinks he thinks Jesus was mildly and respectfully uh, rebuking his mother not to rush things. Don't rush things. There is a plan and there is a time for these things. Uh, and his point was, I still got many things to do. 
before we get to that time when my true glory will be revealed. So then we see after this exchange, uh, Mary says in verse 5, whatever He says to you, do it. Whatever He says to you, do it. Dr. Sproul commented, no one has ever received better instructions from anybody in all of history that those servants received. Right? Amen, right? Amen. From From the mouth, that's right, from the mouth of Mary. Whatever He says, do. Do it. Now this exhortation from the mother of Jesus has many applications and way beyond the situation. But uh, get back to what we said, you know, I wonder if even at this point, does she really know what he's about to do? You know, um, and we've already asked, what, what would you expect Jesus to do in this situation? You know, some some people may, like I say, may give him a, a warning or chastise people from drinking or maybe offers a sermon or maybe he would show us because he's got disciples with him see this is this is not how you behave i mean it could be that but we see here uh the answer we see what jesus does in verse six it says now there were uh, six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the jews containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece now in this part of the world we know that uh, oftentimes water pots are made of mud y'all have seen the, the clay pots And they would have been used for a thousand years and and some are still used today. But the Jews also made pots out of stone. Okay, And the reason was the the water in the clay pots could get bits of dirt in the water and could become a little bit, if you want to call it, contaminated. But the water in these pots, the pots of stone, stayed cleaner. And because these pots, the water, why the water was in these pots was for the rite of purification. Remember, this is a feast. Right? This is a Jewish wedding. And so to partake, to come here at the wedding, every Jew had to go through a ritualistic purification. Okay? They had to be they had, before entering the, the feast. And so they used this water to clean, at least at minimum, their hands and their feet okay? before they could even uh, enter, enter the wedding feast. So that's why these water parts are here. These are the ones that are the cleanest, the purest water. For that, That's what they're used for. So again, that's why we said earlier that it's probably a large feast because it's a lot of water right so there's a lot of people here and so jesus says in verse 7 he says fill the water pots with water and when they had finished in verse 8 he said to them now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast now the master of the feast who is that well that's an official who is um, managing or overseeing this uh, feast for the bridegroom Okay, he's the one. He's the master of this whole ordeal. And so it says that he immediately tasted the water and immediately saw its wine. And it wasn't just regular old wine, right? It was really, really good wine. Right? Really, really good wine. Now, John tells us that the master of the feast was a little bit surprised. Why? Because what would usually happen, right, at these kind of feasts? The good wine comes out first. Right when everybody's fresh and they can taste it well, right, and they they know they're not drunk yet. Okay, uh, so the good wine comes out first, and then what happens as the feast progresses? They have taken more, and they become a little bit more drunk, and then they don't know. So then they bring out you know the lesser quality wine because they're at this point the people don't know the difference. 
right? Um, that's that's kind of, that was customary. Okay, so you bring out the good stuff. They all, hey man, this is great wine. And later on, they slip in the in, in in the cheaper stuff, and that happens still today, right? <laughs> Might know some experience. Oh, okay, been there. <laughs> You've been there. You, you know. You know what I'm talking about. And he's right. He's right. You know. Uh, it's the it's the good beer at the beginning, and then it's by the end of the night, it's ninety light for everybody, right? It's the cheap stuff, right? And you just keep going, right? That's usually what would happen. Well, uh, not only did Jesus take this water and he turned it into wine, he turned it into really, really good wine, and he also made a lot of it. We had to do the do the math, right? We had uh, we had the pots. Each pot held up to how many gallons? Thirty. 30 gallons a piece up to. So we're talking here about 180 gallons of wine. And not cheap wine, but really good wine. Now, um, Dr. Sproul said that here at this point, he said, you know, many of us have been taught uh, that the Jews uh, drank wine because the water was no good. Well, that's not the case. There was nothing wrong with the water. Okay, There was nothing wrong with the water. The water was fine. Water, uh, wine, excuse me, even as we agree today, is a special drink. It's reserved for a special occasion, right? And so if they needed something besides water, they would, they could just drink grape juice. But, but the Jews, because some people would say this was not wine. You know, some people have a problem. We're going to talk about it in a minute. Some people have a problem with Jesus making wine. And, and some people would think, oh, that's, that's bad, um, that Jesus uh, made wine or even uh, drank wine. But, but the Jews, in this case, knew nothing about unfermented grape juice. Okay, they didn't. They knew what wine was, and they used uh, wine. And of course, of we we know that you use grapes to make wine. And here in this time, uh, grapes are one of the two largest crops of the area. The other was, as we know, olives. Right, olive trees. Right, that's what we had a lot of, which which is what they made oil with. The Jews saw the wine as a gift from God. Okay, uh, it would make the heart glad, as we read over in Psalms. Right, Psalms uh, one hundred four, verse fifteen, talks about wine making the heart glad. A little bit of wine makes your heart glad, and so there's nothing wrong with this. And the Jews knew that, and the Jews knew that this would be uh, wine. So a critic, if a critic who comes to verses like this, may say, "Well, Jesus just made grape juice. Well, and he didn't make wine." But there's really absolutely no reason to believe that from anything in Scripture uh, that we know about today or what we find in Scripture. Well, we can look for a minute because there's some symbolism involved in Jesus turning the water into wine. Now, the people had, as we talked about last week, or in the weeks leading up to this, people had different reactions to the ministries of John the Baptist and the ministries of Jesus. How did, how did John come? We, we, we've talked about his ministry, right? He came uh, in, in the mode and in, in like Elijah, right? It's what he's compared to. He lived out in the wilderness, right? He ate uh, locusts and honey. He dressed in an odd way, right? He, he had a different kind of ministry. Even uh, some speculate that he had taken uh, the Nazarite vow, which prohibited him, uh, from, or prohibited him from drinking wine. So he had taken, that's what some would say, and Jesus even said about John later in, over in Luke, he said that he came, remember, he came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. Now, contrast that to the ministry of Jesus. Okay? Contrast that. Jesus 
went to dinners, he went to feasts, he went to weddings, uh, he attended uh, other celebrations such as this wedding here in Cana um, over in Luke 7. Uh, it says about himself, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. Now you got John the Baptist who's out in the wilderness eating locusts and honey, um, and you have Jesus eating and drinking. And remember, um, a lot of people criticize him from that for that, right? But Jesus is explaining here that his behavior was appropriate, and there's a reason, and it's, it's, it's good that we're talking about in the context of a wedding. Because, uh, in, like in John's case, the bridegroom, who is the one who is celebrated, hasn't arrived yet. Okay? Did not arrive yet. But Jesus, as we know about the, the, the purpose of His ministry, is the true bridegroom. And now the bridegroom is here. He's with His people. And so what? It's time to celebrate. Right? We're celebrating. The bridegroom is here. We're, not, we're no longer waiting. He's here. It's time to celebrate. And we read about that over in Luke 5. Over in Luke 5, Jesus said to him, Can you make friends of the bridegroom? Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. The bridegroom was here with them, and so it is a time to celebrate. It is not a time to, to fast, it's a time to celebrate. And so the use of wine is symbolic. Of we just we just talked about that about what it was used for. It was used for special occasions. This is a special occasion. Jesus is here. He's with his disciples. This is a big deal. So it's time to celebrate. It's not time to to fast and to do without and to just drink water only and to live. You know, it's 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 a special uh, time here. Uh, Jesus also used wine as a symbol when he announced the coming of the kingdom. Remember in Luke 5, this is, this is Jesus' words, No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one. Talking about wineskins. Otherwise, the new makes a tear, and also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. And no one puts new wine in the old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled, and the wineskins will be ruined. What Jesus is trying to say uh, throughout His ministry um, is that his ministry, his coming, the coming of the Messiah represented a drastic change. It is a new day. Okay, we have what is how you have worshipped God in the Old Testament, and we have all the old the things that come with the Old Testament and, and that covenant. And now he's bringing uh, the the kingdom. He's bringing a new kingdom. He's bringing new wine. It's a, it's a newness. It's a he's celebrating the newness of bringing the kingdom. He is instituting that. And so bringing water from wine was extremely significant here. Extremely significant that Jesus has done that. Um, sometimes uh, poets have a very, uh, a very amazing way of capturing things. And so uh, the, the poet Alexander Pope, no relation to us that I know of anyway, uh, when he considered this that happened, this Jesus turning water into wine, Alexander Pope said this, The conscience water saw its master and blushed. Isn't that beautiful? The conscience water saw its master and blushed. That's beautiful, isn't it? Some, there, there's some, that's beautiful. Well, 
uh, this account, like many others that we're going to study in the life of Jesus, uh, was a source of controversy. Imagine that, right? Um, the liberals of the 19th century denied that Jesus even did this, that He even turned water into wine. And, and because their deal was they denied all the miracles that Jesus did. They said they really didn't take place in uh, the first time. Uh, they, they, they conjure up their own stories and they said, hey, the Master had been serving the wine from the water pots and then when the pots were close to empty, uh, the, the dregs were left. And so they just added some water to that and then reserved it and that's what you have, right? Which would, um, so it just gave them, the, the servants did what Jesus said, but it just gave it a taste. It wasn't really good wine, right? It was watered down stuff. In other words, what are they trying to say? It's just a trick. Jesus just tricked the people. That's what the liberal would try to say. Of course, ironically, they said the same thing about the when Jesus fed the 5,000. They tried to explain that away. Remember that they said he was standing in front of a cave and the disciples had a bunch of food stored in the, in the cave and they were just handing that to him and it just, it just looked like he was you know, making uh, uh, more of what he had. Just come up with this stuff, this, this kind of crazy stuff. Rather than just believing it's a miracle of God because Jesus is the Son of God and He can do that. Rather than just taking that for what it is, they would try to come up with some other ways to, to explain it away. So you got the liberals saying it didn't really happen. Now on the other side, you've got some ultra-conservatives who, when they read about this miracle, they're quite embarrassed that Jesus, how could Jesus make wine? Right? They're just, they don't even want to talk about this miracle. Right? Maybe it's not there. Maybe they can pretend it's not in the Bible. Because they believe that drinking wine is a sin. And so since Jesus was sinless, they would say there's no way He could have done this. He wouldn't have done this. Jesus never made wine out of water. He never drank wine. He's sinless because wines, drinking wine is a sin. Well, uh, the reality is that many of our day and uh, you know, have been raised uh, in churches that would have taught that Jesus never did this. He never drank wine. He never, he never made wine. Because they say that, that that's a sin, and drinking wine's a sin. They said that the wine that they refer to in the Lord's Supper, which we're going to have next week, uh, when he says the fruit of the vine, oh, that was just grape juice. That, that wouldn't, it just wouldn't happen. Well, Dr. Sproul said uh, that he and many, many others Okay, have argued that every Jew knew what you were meaning when you said the fruit of the vine. And it was wine. Okay, that's what it was. It was not grape juice. It was wine. And that's exactly what Jesus did here. He made water into wine and he used wine when he instituted the Lord's Supper. That's what he used. Now, and, and you may know someone, maybe who struggles with this particular conviction, right? Because again, we're in the, the rural south, you know, the Bible Belt. There are still a lot of our brothers and sisters in the Lord, let me be clear, who would have a problem with wine. And so you may know someone who has been taught that all their life and they still believe that. And they still may uh, believe that the drinking wine is a sin. Well, what you and I need to remember is what Paul tells us over in Romans 14 and what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians. 
That if someone is convicted based on their conscience that it is a sin, then for them it's a sin. Okay? Um, Paul tells us that and, and of course, the, the 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 New Testament here. Okay, when we talk about what Paul's saying over there, um, Paul, the, the New Testament, and Paul and his teaching in the letters is not teaching some sort of relativism, right? That, that's not all what Paul is trying to say. Um, but Paul was trying to say that whatever is not of faith is of sin. That's in Romans fourteen. And then we also learn from the scriptures that it's completely wrong to go against one's own conscience. Now, again, we don't share this conviction here. We don't teach that here at this church. Um, but there may be some who, who have this certain conviction. Um, and again, I think all of us uh, who are at liberty to not have this conviction because the New Testament doesn't, doesn't place this on us need to just... Love our brothers and sisters is really, and pray for them. That's the best thing we can really do with this. Because again, if someone is convinced that this is wrong, um, then we just we shouldn't try to make them go against their own conscience. Okay, and this is just one example of that. But this is one because we're talking about the miracle of turning water uh, into wine. Because of this view of wine, there's, of course, many churches, including our own, that when we serve the Lord's Supper next week, um, only serve grape juice. Okay, that's what we serve. Now, it's not saying our church believes it's okay, I mean, to have wine. We're not saying that. But we've done that as a practice for I don't know how long. Some of our older members who are here could tell us that. You've been in the church all your life. I'm sure it's probably been done that way for a long time. I don't know. Anybody, anybody know? I'm looking at Mom and uh, Dad and uh, Miss Pam. Has it always been just grape juice here? I'm looking at y'all and Kathy and Devi and yeah, we others. Had, um, we did have some wine or something. Okay. For a while, but then there was it's clear that when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he used wine. And we shouldn't be ashamed of that. That's nothing to be ashamed of or, or anything. Uh, he made wine. He made water into wine and he drank the wine. Um, there's not one word in the Bible that says it is a sin to drink wine. Is it? There's not one place in the Bible. The Bible does say it's a sin to do what? To get drunk on it. Yes. Uh, a lot of churches, I've been to a few churches too, uh, that have, when they serve the Lord's Supper, I think either the outer ring sometimes is wine, and then some of the inner is juice. So you can take your pick. You just kind of know. Yeah, I right? Remember, I, I remember, and this is, this is a story. Right. But I remember when it got to the back, all the wine was gone, and some of the people got upset. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, whether that's true or not, I might. I don't know. know. I, I heard that tell. Well, that's very possible, I guess. Um, <laughs> it's very, it's, I was it's, thinking about speaking about what Paul said, mm-hmm. and he, he wasn't saying that, he wasn't lifting up rampant individualism like we see today Correct. in society. It's not that you should determine what's right for you. Right. Don't say anything about what's right or wrong for me because that's not your place. What he is holding up and what we see in the history of Reformation is that the scriptures are the only thing that binds our conscience. Amen. And 
So with indulgences and other things that Martin Luther decried in the in the theses that he nailed to the door, um, he was saying this is this is a travesty um, that people believe this. The only thing that binds the conscience is is the scripture, not the church or a pope or a bishop or anyone else. So he's actually not promoting individualism. He's saying this is how the priesthood of the believer functions under the authority of the scriptures. Not for you to say, Tim, don't say anything to me about mine, I won't say anything to you about yours, and never the twain shall meet. Um, otherwise, you look at the rest of Scripture in the New Testament and say, why does he encourage believers to confess their sins one to another and pray for one another that you be healed? Obviously, there's meant to be a dialogue. So, I'm just agreeing with what you're saying yeah. about how Paul spoke to the conscience and right. the Scriptures. Right. Thank you. Thank you for that. Adding that most definitely. Um... So again, we were affirming the Bible. Nowhere says that you can't drink wine. Um, I like how R.C.'s put it in his commentary. He says the possible when considering this particular issue, because it can be abused. We already admitted that. He said the possibility of abuse does not require disuse. Is that the possibility of abuse does not require disuse? That's a, it's a one. It's a profound. It's true. It's accurate. Right. Uh, I said some other. Uh, I've heard it said about other things. Uh, never judge something by its abuse, right? Uh, you, you can't, that's that's unwise to do that. Uh, so uh, I, that's extremely extremely uh, helpful about this. Well, again, uh, finally here towards the end of this reading, uh, John notes that this was Jesus's first miracle, and uh, in verse eleven it says this manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. These disciples, as we mentioned, were there. They saw this conscience water see its master and blush, right? They were amazed at what had happened here. And his disciples saw this and they believed. That bell's early. we got three more minutes. Um, and so we see uh, the significance of this first miracle. Okay, the first miracle that I recorded of Jesus, his public ministry, it... Not it, it didn't bring it didn't serve to bring attention uh, to only him, all, although it did that. He's verifying who he is. But uh, through the symbolize uh, the symbolism of the turning water into wine, he was he, he was it was bringing attention to this new kingdom that he was about to bring into pass a new time, a new era. The bridegroom is now with the people, and it's time to celebrate. And there's new wine, which is a wonderful way of to, way to close tonight. Today, this morning, this morning, sorry. The bell did ring, so I'll honor it. I'll pray until we can go. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for our time this morning. Father, again, um, we ask that if anything has been said here this morning, Father, that's incorrect, that it's not in accordance uh, with your word, Father, we ask that you remove it and take it away from our memory, never bring it back again. Father, but where we've heard uh, truth from you this morning, Father, we pray that you will help us apply it to our lives. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.